Today on Podcast by the Bay, current candidate for judge of the San Mateo County Superior Court, Richard Wilson. It's uh, very uncommon for somebody, a member of the bar, qualified attorney, to step up and uh, file in opposition to an incumbent judge who him or herself has filed to serve another term. And I label that lack of opposition, which uh, is pretty uh, systemic and across the board, especially in San Mateo County, uh, perpetual unopposed incumbency. Discussing why he wants to be the next San Mateo County Superior Court judge, and also discussing issues such as bail reform. I'm in favor of it. I mean, it's, it's considered a public safety question primarily in that if we can um, credibly, reliably assess the public safety risk in addition to the flight risk of uh, people in certain categories of um, offenses, that uh, it it makes sense to adjust the bail or set the bail at a level that um, is manageable. All coming up on today's episode of Podcast by the Bay. Stay tuned. Podcast by the Bay is brought to you by Highway Soul Productions. Check us out at HighwaySoul.com and in conjunction with Liberty Realty. Liberty Realty, serving the peninsula and surrounding areas since 1986 for all your real estate needs. www.Liberty-RealtyInvestments.com Remember to subscribe and download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. You can contact Podcast by the Bay by their email at podcastbythebay at gmail.com. And now, another Podcast by the Bay. Okay, welcome to Podcast by the Bay. This is Andre. And this is Patrick. And welcome to another rendition of Podcast by the Bay. We thank you for being with us. And we thank you for downloading this episode. And we thank you for spreading the word to all your friends about Podcast by the Bay. We definitely appreciate your feedback. And so today, we are actually going to continue our election coverage. And so today, we have a very special guest. And this is somebody who's running for the County of San Mateo, the judge of the Superior Court. And that is Richard Wilson. So Patrick... You got to meet Richard. You got to speak with him. You got to talk about some of the issues that are really pertaining to a judge. Uh, so, 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 can you tell us a little bit about Richard? Well, you know, I'm going to give you a little bit of background of Richard. He lives in San Carlos. His wife's an attorney. He's been practicing for over 30 years. Um, he just retired um, from doing litigation. He did litigation. For a well-known company we'll talk about later. He's running against a Judge Bushwall um, who's 70 years old. Richard Wilson is 63. Um, and he's running for uh, not too many times does a uh, judge actually be challenged um, for his seat. Usually the, the seat is only filled by an appointment of a governor um, and it could happen because of a death. Um, but judges do run for re-election, um, and not very often does anyone challenge it. In this race, 
you also had at one time uh, Wendler. Uh, Wendler is a district attorney, and he was was not Michael Wender. He was a district attorney in San Mateo County, and he said if Judge Bushwald runs again, he's not going to stand in his way, and he won't won't uh, challenge the incumbent. Wilson retired last as a senior counsel for the UC system, where he oversaw the systems claims and lawsuits from the university's medical departments and hospitals. He doesn't have a criminal law background, but you don't need to have a criminal law background to be a judge. You have to have decency and fairness. He's well-respected in the bar. Um, <clears throat> Wilson was determined to run to challenge an incumbent. Um, and the current judge has been on the bench since the year 2005, so he hasn't been challenged for all these times. He was originally appointed by Arnold Schwarzenegger. He lives in, uh, the current judge lives in Hillsboro. Um, it's not unusual in San Mateo County. I know a couple of judges. Uh, <clears throat> judge, um, I know Judge um, Joe Scott. Joe Scott was appointed by um, a Democratic governor, as well as there was another gentleman, um, Joe, uh, John Koresh is also on the bench. Uh, another candidate. Most of them are, are appointed by a political ideology at that time, whoever is governor. Uh, and most of the time, these judges aren't challenged. And they should be challenged because it, it could be an elected seat if, first of all, it's appointed. Um, let's talk about the basis of, of Richard's campaign. His basis of his campaign is to make sure that we have fairness um, in the judiciary process and that, that the public have an opportunity to elect their, their judge if so desired and that it is not just a given given thing that all of a sudden that somebody is able to be able to just year um, term after term just be renewed. <clears throat> um, Rick Wilson has been on several podcasts. Um, he's made a, a lot of good speeches. Um, He's been senior counsel for the University of California Office of General Counsel, staff counsel for litigation program. He's also been a judge pro tem. He's a judicial counsel of the California Administrative Office of Courts, governing the body of California. He's a litigator. He was a trial partner in, in Hassard Bonington LLP in San Francisco. Um, a bit of his personal background, Rick is, is married to Marie and lives in San Mateo County for 30 years. The children were raised here and attended local schools. They are now grown and working in legal, high-tech, and public service. I met him in his home. He's a real down-to-earth kind of guy. I asked him about um, the Brock Turner case, which was the case in the Stanford swim student where the judge, in some people's opinion, made a lenient sentence. And he, in a very diplomatic way, said he didn't want to respond to that because he, uh, criminal law was not his expertise. So he only speaks from his heart and his expertise. He seems like a fair person. He seems well, well-rounded in his background and his legal background. Dedicated public servant. Um, but the main thing I want you to understand, he's running against an incumbent. Whether you run, and when you run against an incumbent judge, that's a rather difficult process because that one judge is basically record is very unless that one judge does something horrendous that uh, would make him unqualified for the bench the likelihood of him getting elected is very high so I appreciate that Rick Wilson is challenging the system and is saying that it's not just that you're an incumbent but what is your experience and what and 
He's not saying that Judge Bushwall is not a good attorney or judge. He's saying it's time to let the people, the voters, make a decision and not that it's an automatic given that incumbent. It's been almost 30 or 40 years. I was just going to I was going to add to your your thought there. And I think it's actually a wonderful point, extremely wonderful point. When we interviewed Michelle Dauber talking about the recall Judge Aaron Persky campaign, we asked her that question about should we be, you know, paying attention to the, some of these judges that are actually, uh, you know, appointed. And so she actually did say yes. Um, we should be as a society, as a as residents, we should be paying attention to who is who are, um, you know, the types of decisions that are being made and, and, and really um, who these people are. And it doesn't happen too often that people run against somebody who's already an incumbent. He feels that it's time for his, for his for his vision. And I think we can appreciate that here at Podcast by the Bay. We definitely like to hear people's vision and to hear people's. Uh, thought process about things. So I, I just wanted to add to your point, Patrick, about that, because I think that's that's a very important thing is that this was exactly what, in in order to make the system work as it should and to really make our society uh, function with checks and balances, you know, Michelle Dauber did point out about that, that we need to do this exactly what Richard Wilson has done, is the people that are there watching this that really have the credentials and are the qualifications they need to be running for these types of offices, for these positions, and really push and make the change. Well, you know, he and actually Rick Wilson on one of his websites has a really good outline, and I don't think most of the public, so I'm just going to give some highlights. A Superior Court judges are either appointed or elected. Uh, the terms are six years by the California Constitution, incorporating a Democratic element by requiring re-election to in the office. Judges are thereby faced with least the possibility of challenge, a vacancy is due to resignation, retirement, or death, and is filled by the appointment of the governor through an application and selection process. The appointment judge then is subject to an election which expires. If an incumbent judge decides not to seek re-election, qualified attorneys can run for the open seat. If an incumbent is unopposed in election, she or he does not appear on the ballot. Okay, so our Superior Court judges are overwhelmingly uncontested. Re-election bids by incumbents are therefore not on the ballots, and there's no information or opportunity for voters to participate in the process. Now, we know in, a, in, the, in, in the appointments to the uh, United States Supreme Court, they have to have hearings, um, and the House, the House of Representatives and the Senate vote on that um, opportunity to put a judge. So it is important to have an election process. So... I think it's a rare opportunity. Let's give this opportunity to Rick Wilson, um, a dedicated attorney. Um, and he's got good references on his website from judges and other attorneys, litigants and defense attorneys. So without further ado, I think we need to listen to Rick Wilson. He's got a val- valid point. He's got a valid reason for running. And give him an opportunity to, to hear him out. Well, let's do that, Patrick. Let's do exactly that. And if you have any questions, you have any feedback, please reach out to us, podcastbythebay at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter, at podcastbythebay, and also on Facebook, facebook.com slash podcastbythebay. And we're happy to respond. We're happy to hear your ideas and engage. And uh, keep keep up to date with us on Twitter also because there's a lot of postings uh, about current uh, updates, current shows, issues that we're dealing with. 
And we're excited. We got some great upcoming shows and stuff. So, yeah. So, without further ado, we are going to go ahead and get to the Richard Wilson, who's running for the Superior Court of San Mateo judge. So, here we go. Uh, And with that, this is Andre. And this is Patrick. And we'll catch you on the next time of Podcast by the Bay. Stay tuned. Welcome to Podcast by the Bay. Uh, Today is Wednesday, the 23rd of May. 2018, we have the honor of interviewing Rick Wilson. Rick Wilson is running uh, for the Superior Court in San Mateo County. He's running against what we call incumbents. And I want to welcome you to the podcast by the Bay, Rick. And I wanted to get uh, get a little background about your legal background so that the listeners have a a feel for where where you've been and your journey to run for judge. Thank you, Patrick. Uh, I have lived in San Carlos and San Mateo County for over 30 years with my wife, Marie, and we raised our kids here. That's kind of my uh, personal stake here in the community. We're very committed to that. But professionally, I uh, worked for a law firm. I was a partner at Hazard Bonington LLP in San Francisco, which has a practice all over Northern California. So I, for many years, litigated and uh, also tried cases in Northern California counties, including San Mateo County. Uh, From there, I was hired by the Judicial Council of California, which is the uh, governing body of the California court system. It's the headquarters of the judicial branch. Uh, It has an administrative office with a centralized legal office in San Francisco. Uh, The reason I was hired was to uh, be part of an initial team to implement a program of managing litigation uh, for the court system around the state. Uh, That program was successfully uh, implemented, and I uh, was then um, offered the position for the University of California in its headquarters office in Oakland, the office of the president, where we also have a centralized legal office, the Office of General Counsel, to oversee a litigation program for the University of California system-wide. Uh, In that role, I was uh, in courts and uh, mediation offices and legal offices around the state, various counties, and uh, overseeing and managing litigation of certain types uh, brought against the university and its employees. So how many years of uh, practice of law? Uh, Over 30 years. Wow. Well, congratulations for doing that, because even though it is a profession, it is definitely a public service in another way, too. So um, can you tell our listeners... um, um, why you chose to run for judge. Um, I mean, I've had an opportunity to go to your website um, and also read your, your political statement. And obviously, you're, you're trying to buck the system when not in, in so many words and as opposed to uh, trying to talk about your candidates you're running against. San Mateo County, like a lot of jurisdictions in the Superior Court, um, seem to have a pass for all of the people that are, are become commissioners. Uh, and uh, the bench, usually uh, it's almost impossible to upset an incumbent or somebody that is backed by the, um, by the bench itself. So why don't you go into why, and I, I respect you tremendously to uh, put on that challenge. It's not, it's not easy to run against an incumbent. Over many of those years when I was uh, in public employment, uh, which was uh, the latter part of my career, I thought at times uh, about applying to become a Superior Court judge. It uh, didn't seem to fit with my career 
plans at that time and uh, family and everything else I was doing. And I enjoyed the work, especially the last 12 and a half years or so with the university and that program I was in. Uh, when I decided to uh, leave the university, when, which I did last July, uh, I then, in consultation with my wife, who's a very strong partner with me, she's an attorney also, by the way, uh, determined that uh, now was the time, if I was ever going to do it, uh, since I was coming off that uh, job with the university, uh, to pursue the idea, the goal, the ultimate goal of becoming a superior court judge, the appointment process would not have worked for me at this time uh, in my life and uh, and uh, the way that that system works, which I do explain in my papers why and don't we, why don't, materials. Yeah, why don't we bring that out? Because I, I have uh, two people that are on the bench, which is John Koresh and Joe Scott. They both were appointments. Or for our listeners, would you explain how that process works? Sure. And uh, if anyone is interested, on my website there is available a paper that I wrote. It's three pages long with bullet points, very easy to read, to explain uh, what we're talking about. And I call it the working paper on appointment and election of superior court judges. The, uh, the California Constitution creates terms for superior court judges, and the superior court judges are those at the county level. So it's a countywide, nonpartisan position. Uh, that element of, of terms of six years built into the, Calif- into the uh, judgeships by the California Constitution envisions a democratic element in that a sitting judge is subject to facing the voters when they file for re-election. And every judge, when their term is coming up, if they want to continue, has to file for re-election. What happens is uh, most judges uh, are appointed rather than elected. Once appointed, and it's a system that um, is designed with uh, a review process, an application and review process, which ultimately goes to the governor with a set of recommendations from a panel of people, his appointment secretary, consultation with local bar members and so on, he gets a list of people and then for whatever reason uh, is the one who makes the final appointment decision. Uh, Judgeships become available because someone retires during the term rather than deciding to not run for re-election at the end of the term. They uh, resign because they want to become a mediator or go back to practice or do something else, creating a vacancy during the term, or perhaps they die or get ill and they have to resign. When that kind of vacancy occurs, then the office is filled by appointment. When that appointed judge then gets to the end of term, there's, it's, it, it's provided for in the California Constitution when, when the next election is that they would then have to file for. They have to file for election. Now, can they use now, um, can they use the word incumbent on their thing? So, yes. Okay. Now, I know that that's been... Well, a, they, the incumbent, that word, if you look at this ballot, it shows the, uh, the name of the judge and then it says judge of the Superior Court. It doesn't say incumbent mm-hmm. judge of the Superior Court, but because it's the way it's described, it's clear that I'm facing an incumbent. Um, which, what happens is, as just finishing that thought, which I explain in that working paper, is that it's uh, very uncommon for somebody, a member of the bar, a qualified attorney, to step up 
and uh, file in opposition to an incumbent judge who him or herself has filed to serve another term. And I labeled that lack of opposition, which uh, is pretty uh, systemic and across the board, especially in San Mateo County, uh, perpetual unopposed incumbency. Certain things get lost in that, in that that democratic element that is by design in the California Constitution is never fulfilled. It's pretty much eviscerated because the judges, if they are not opposed, they don't appear on the ballot. The voters don't hear about it. They don't receive any information. And in matter of fact, when you talk to people, by far, most of them don't even remember when they last saw a judicial election involving an incumbent. Now, I was told, and maybe I can be corrected because you're the attorney here, um, that because the incumbent that's running or the, the judge, he can talk to the other judges and he can work with those judges and uh, they can support him uh, on a professional level or as an individual level. Now, I was I with the understanding that you're restricted, that you cannot approach judges that are currently on the bench to support you? I don't think there's anything that... Uh, uh, legally or technically prevents me from contacting them, although they are, would be very careful to have uh, communications or contacts uh, using their public office, their public email. Uh, they really should uh, try to engage in any political process of that nature, personally and on the side, which, which makes it more difficult. Um, but it's true that the incumbent, and what happens is uh, with incumbents who are challenged uh, when it does occur, the uh, other members of the bench, their colleagues on the bench, tend to close ranks and tend to support their threatened colleague. And uh, uh, I don't mean to uh, uh, cast aspersions on the other judges, but I think that that happens as a matter of a reflexive, almost, reaction where it's, uh, you might call it a circling of the wagons. Kind of like code defend. blue for police officers. <laughs> they a defend bit. the yeah. colleague that's being yeah. challenged, even if they know full well that there are some issues or problems that are causing this challenge. And uh, that's one issue that I have, is that this uh, perpetual unopposed incumbency, which has become the norm and systemic, um, uh, allows in certain instances judges who are underperforming or have issues of one kind or another that are apparent to litigants and apparent to attorneys to go on and to go on and on. Well, I noticed with the court system, we're, we're especially with a lot of the publicity uh, for sexual harassment and other issues that a lot of these judges are being called out on the carpet, so to speak, or some of them have even been asked to resign because of their inappropriate behavior. And I don't want to particularly talk about any one judge in San Mateo County, but I want to go back to your initial question. When was the last time a challenger was actually able to win? That was uh, uh, Judge Eugene McDonald. I'm pretty sure I'm correct on that. I've, I've uh, compared notes and, and looked it up, and, uh, and that's the common uh, memory and reference that uh, everybody has. Uh, everybody liked Gene McDonald. I knew Gene McDonald when he was on the bench and after he left the bench and went into mediation, but that was at least, uh, I think, 25 years ago, maybe more. Um, and uh, since then, I'm not aware of a situation like 
I'm bringing forward, and that is a uh, older incumbent who wants to serve yet another term, who uh, I and other lawyers that I know uh, and parties uh, feel really should not continue. It would have been preferable for us if he had decided to retire. He elected not to retire, but to uh, go on for another term. Somebody had to step up, and I could, and it was part of my uh, my plan, as I described earlier, and, uh, and I think it's a righteous challenge, if you will. Okay, I'm going to kind of ask a consumer thing. Is there, there's no test for competency on the bench, is there? Um, if someone is appointed to the bench, uh, as long as they're reelected or they run, there's, there's no one, to, 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 there's no overseer or challenger to say that the judge, judge is not competent to serve on the bench. Do, that's, do, you, think, do you think that's something that uh, we should be looking at? Well, it, it's a very difficult thing to assess because a lot of the factors are pretty uh, kind of soft factors, if you will, in terms of judicial reasoning decision-making, quality of their opinions, uh, also behavioral issues in the court, treatment of litigants, um, the experience that people have in that courtroom, uh, treatment of staff perhaps. There's all these things which uh, become difficult to um, isolate and identify in a particular case to the point that it becomes egregious enough that some authority, like the Commission on Judicial Performance, if it's reported to them sufficiently, will come in and do any kind of investigation. Uh, there could be situations where a judge is just clearly lo losing fitness, like um, you know, one of the qualities that uh, goes into being a judge is mental and physical capacity to fulfill the duties of a judge. That also is very difficult for people to um, assess with a sitting judge, unless it's clear that you have evidence of pre-senility or something, uh, or other so we're probably problems. really talking to a judge, and then we're going to get into the. Um, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit, but before I put you on the spot, I want to talk about a couple issues. We had a recession a while back, okay, and in the Superior Court, and I was following the situation down there in San Mateo County, and I think you were quite instrumental, uh, from what I was told of trying to streamline the process and get all of the court system on a computer. So when people were making their interrogatories, their pleas, their complaints, um, but for some reason they, we weren't, you weren't adaptable, or the, at that time maybe it was poor timing, to be able to uh, connect all of those courts. Currently in, in San Mateo County, because of that recession, as you know, um, it's my understanding we lease the courts from the state. What do you think about that? And, and, and it's a two-part question. Where are we going to go with trying to streamline? And it's hard and difficult to get lawyers and judges, I guess, to be willing to trust the computers as well as they do. And I know we've come a long way since that last recession. Where are we? Well, yeah, I'm not sure uh, how to connect the uh, recession part of your question with the other question, which is trying to... Uh, modernize and implement uh, technology and all the advances and things that are available technologically into a large system like the court, whether it's the San Mateo County Superior Court itself or collectively the courts uh, around our state. Uh, in answering your question, I would say that, uh, one, when I uh, went to the uh, Judicial Council of California Administrative Office of the Courts, this type of thing was uh, 
part of a set of initiatives that the court was, uh, the, the, the headquarters of the courts were trying to move forward. And it's, uh, it's a big system with, with lots of counties, lots of different situations, and budgetary restraints. And when that 2007-2008 uh, um, recession came, uh, whether it's the court system or the uh, University of California, public entities were faced and have been faced ever since with uh, decreasing revenues and budgets and those kinds of constraints, but ever increasing demands on services. And the local court, the San Mateo County Superior Court, with their executive officer and that staff and the judges, I'm, I'm sure over these years where that kind of constraint has been everyone's experience in public life, public employment, and I experienced it when I was at the University of California as well, uh, have tried in every way that they know how to make the best and provide the best services they can under those constraints. Uh, technology is very expensive. Uh, you, you try to implement a, even just across a system like the San Mateo County Superior Court system. It's very expensive and time-consuming. Uh, we all have heard of um, kind of uh, well-known failures in that regard. Uh, the DMV tried it. The mm -hmm. court system sure. centrally tried it uh, and are still working on it. Um, Obamacare implementation tried it. And when you're trying to implement these things with a, as much data and as complicated and widespread as it is, it's really hard. Okay. But I, I would say that from my employment, I bring something that, in my background, that most judges who come to the bench do not have. And that is a programmatic experience where part of my responsibilities were process improvement and trying to find ways to improve efficiency in operations. And I have mentioned that in my materials, that that's one thing that I promised to work hard to do, and that is to improve processes, services, and efficiency at the court. But that requires working with the people that are presently well, there. To, to your knowledge, and I've talked to a few people, a couple of people that have run for judge, and also uh, that are attorneys in San Mateo County, um, and it's their opinion that they think that we're understaffed with judges. And one of the biggest reasons why we're understaffed with judges, they can't afford to have the clerks and the people that they would need to help with the courts so that we have a more timely due process happening. Um, are you aware of that, or do you think that is a problem? The number of judges are uh, determined by the legislature. So to get an increase in judges from the current 26 to 27, 28, 29, it would require the effort, and I suspect, but I don't know for sure, that the uh, judges and uh, executive staff at the court have worked on that. The way to help fill that need is with the commissioners, which are not uh, full judicial officers, but they, well, they are judicial officers, but they're not superior court judges. Uh, they are hired, but that's subject to budget. And I believe right now there are four commissioners, but they had to reduce the number of commissioners uh, because to four because of uh, financial constraints. And so that's, we are, that's we always are, the problem. Right, so it's the financial. Now I'm going to kind of go to a little more controversial thing, which was the public defenders program um, in San Mateo County. And, and um, 
maybe you can educate the public a little bit because it's my understanding what we 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 did is we took it out of the public defender's office and we were working with local firms that are helping with the public defender. Explain to the listeners how the public defenders is working or is not working properly. Well, first of all, let me say as a caveat that I do not work with the public defenders program, the volunteer attorneys program that they use. Uh, I know about it. Uh, I know people who are in it, but I'm not sure I can answer uh, with any kind of uh, credibility what's working and not working within that program. But the county of San Mateo, the court here, has uh, gone to that system. We don't have a public defender like San Francisco County or Santa Clara County, Um, but we have a pretty robust program. And I think that the uh, Bar Association and its executive director and board and so on try very hard to make that program as uh, serviceable and quality as they can. But local attorneys... Uh, who are qualified apply and become uh, accepted to be attorneys in this program. Fees are paid. It's not volunteer in that sense. Uh, The fees are paid and they they do get paid for their work. I don't know what the rate is right now that they're being paid. Uh, But in terms of where that particular program could be improved, I don't know right now. But if I become a judge, I would certainly include learning more about that and being able to uh, try to help assess where improvements could be made. Okay, what's your current um, position on bail reform? I'm in favor of it. I mean, it's it's considered a public safety question primarily in that if we can um, credibly, reliably assess the public safety risk in addition to the flight risk, of uh, people in certain categories of um, offenses, that uh, it it makes sense to adjust the bail or set the bail at a level that um, is manageable. Is it and and there's a lot of reasons for that. So that's really what's behind the bail reform is trying to not punish people that are of uh, low income, no means to post the higher bail. Some people need to be kept um, on a schedule like that to protect the public if they're a risk of further offenses or if they uh, are a high risk of flight. But there's many and many categories of offenses where the thought is that that higher bail just means that these people are uh, being, in a sense, uh, unfairly required. Well, it seems to be a treadmill that they, they seem to can't get out of, too, because uh, it not only affects their employment, it affects their, if they had child care or were able to pay rent or be able to pay for the child care or uh, make sure that they have employment. So I think there is a big disparity there. Um, the statistics, I don't know exactly, but I know that there's probably a high percentage of the people that are incarcerated that can't make bail. Um, that seem to go back on the treadmill all over again, uh, primarily because they haven't got o- got over the last time they had to do it. Again, we'd like to see some more yeah. reform and more innovative ideas. And I think it's a systemic uh, issue. There are people that are uh, really passionate about that, and, and a lot of it is the uh, public defender and the defense community because they work with that every single day and see uh, the impacts on, on people. Okay, and, I, I want to go into a little more controversial question and, and just assume that you are a judge now and you, you've been placed on the bench. 
Um, would you have made any different decision on the Brock Turner case? Probably, but I don't know for sure. Probably. What all I know is what's been reported. And uh, I have concluded that just based on what I know, uh, that that sentence that he gave, the, out, the, the, the outcome that was, uh, you know, a result of the decision this judge made was too light. And I think that that's been pretty much the general consensus of people that well, talk about it. We have podcast by the bay did a little more research on that, too, because we were interested in, in, in not making uh, opinions, but just trying to come with solutions. Um, the situation, we had a, an exclusive interview, interview with Michelle Dauber, uh, the Stanford professor that is recalling Brock Turner, or the Judge Persky, I mean. Um, and um, it, it was fascinating. We also had a defense attorney, uh, Jeff Hayden, uh, that ran for uh, Judge 2, talk about it. And it, it appeared that, um, that the sentencing, uh, whether we agree with it or disagree with it, was in line with what was typical for that particular type of case. So when I go into the, into the broader question for you, um, do you, I think judges need to have their objectivity, and I would assume that you would agree, oh, yeah. or do we just need to see them fall into line to whatever is standard in that particular case? Yeah, and I'm not sure that I would agree with you that it's typical or standard where uh, Judge Persky landed on this. Uh, my understanding is that it was within the spectrum or range of what the probation report and court services uh, would serve up as uh, possible determinations. And it wasn't completely off of the playing field. He chose that outcome. And most people feel like under the circumstances that uh, that was unwise and uh, justice and how, whatever words you want to use would indicate a stricter sentence, more, more punishment. So, but, but what I don't know is because I have not sat on that kind of case, if one could say that is normal, typical, or standard, I don't think so. But I do feel, because people ask me this all the time, I even at hometown days here in San Carlos last weekend, a woman saw my wife and I walk along, they called across the street. How do you feel about the Persky recall? And I called right back and said, I don't agree that recall is appropriate in this instance, in this situation. But what I would say is that what I'm doing now with regard to the incumbent I'm challenging would be an appropriate approach if someone really felt that this judge needs to be replaced. And that's challenge when he seeks re-election, because that's what the term and the standing for retention election really is designed for. This recall idea is, uh, you know, most people can't remember the last time that happened, except in... The 1927, actually, and, and it happened when a women's group was recalling a judge. So was and there was the, uh, there was the uh, kind of famous Rose Bird and Moreno, and uh, I think four Supreme Court justices were being attacked and challenged because of their positions on certain things, and that effort was very well-funded and uh, backed and was successful. Uh, but I don't remember exactly procedurally whether that was called a recall or something else. But this, for a superior court judge, 
you've apparently researched the last time was that long ago. Cause it's, yeah, it's, it's been a long time. It's that unusual yeah. of a uh, remedy. Remedy. Um, one of the things that didn't come out in the case, at least it didn't, is, uh, is to my understanding that uh, the victim was at the sentencing for Brock Turner. And the victim made a statement, which probably should be on the record somewhere, but we didn't see it except in a newspaper in New York, that she said that, that Brock Turner didn't need to serve time, but he needed help. Um, and when I reach out to you there, we're really talking about a behavior that, that that's egregious and it's continuing on. Do you think that we uh, that we can pass some kind of laws or rules that uh, aggressively that, that uh, change the behavior? So what we're really talking about is a behavior of young people uh, that were uh, engaged in a uh, drunken sexual assault, according to the law. Um, what do you think we can do that? Because this 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 is and it's a tough question. This is happening all across the country where. A young person uh, is involved in or intoxicated with somebody that may be 17 or 17 and a half. Do we, do we need to look at things differently, Rick? Well, my, uh, my general response is that uh, I think that programs for uh, rehabilitation, restoration, uh, trying to, uh, uh, especially with uh, younger and first-time offenders or uh, however you want to describe it, um, those programs need to be uh, reinforced and uh, improved because uh, you, there are a lot of reasons why things happen. You were just describing a set of circumstances with the drinking and that sort of thing. Um, there's a lot of other circumstances that uh, people, especially young people, uh, have as part of their background, which properly assessed and uh, with help of psychologists and court services people and other people in those kind of programs, which programs do exist and are in place. And there's a, it's a big, uh, uh, I don't know if movement is the right word, but it's a big school of thought that, that uh, you really need to have that restorative, rehabilitative model working strongly. And with that, then you can impose certain conditions so that you don't necessarily ruin someone's life for an offense that um, they probably themselves would agree was highly regrettable and didn't meet even their own standards of behavior. Um, and so I, I think that uh, all of that needs to be looked at. And that's the challenge for a judge as well as the court services and probation people is to to take the time and be diligent and look at all of those circumstances well, and come up with what is really uh, the best approach for meeting both the needs and demands of justice and the victim, but also uh, there has to be some element of restoration. Um, why don't we look at a bigger picture, and I'm going to assume you, you had some kind of uh, magic wand for a moment. Um, San Quentin has over 2,000 prisoners, probably 60 to 70 percent are in there for drug-related crimes. Um, also in the rehabilitation, we're lucky to have a 10 or 15 percent rehabilitation programs. Why are we still lacking in the state of California and probably across the country, I don't want to just, rehabilitation, um, when the recidivism rate is still extremely high? Um, we're not giving these individuals an opportunity and they're kind of like the hamster in the treadmill. They, uh, they, they come say the right thing so they can get out 
Uh, they come out with only a few dollars in their pocket. Uh, they can't get a job. So the only thing that they've learned, how do we, how would you, Rick, or if you had a magic one, how can we break that system? Because this system has been in place for probably over a hundred years. Well, the the big problem and the big concern in so many of these areas is uh, one budget, financial shortfalls, to be able to do what many people would probably like to be able to do, and I think that is present in this. And and the other is is the will, and it takes uh, a lot of determination and energy for people that feel strongly and passionately about that, as many people do, to move in this environment of being on the edge of budgetary problems all the time, to move that forward to be able to increase services of that nature in the face of all kinds of other needs and demands and problems that you you have. And I would be all in favor if I had a magic wand of providing all of those services. There's all kinds of support services, psychological, health, and support from beginning to end that could be beneficial for a lot of people who have committed offenses. And then you have to be careful to separate out those that are uh, not as uh, amenable to correct correction and, uh, and uh, maybe have some mental and psychological issues that make them a danger to society and so on. But all of that gets factored in. But if I had the magic wand, I would wave it over the resources and, uh, and, uh, and the teams that are trying to implement that, because I do think there's a lot of people that want that. In observation only, and in, in talking with other attorneys too, um, uh, San Mateo County has some pretty stiff sentencing uh, for a bench that, that, that in my frame of mind, without talking politics, would you would think it'd be a little bit more lenient or more liberal on sentencing. A sentence for carjacking in San Mateo County would probably get a less or get a more uh, stiffer sentence than maybe in San Francisco. What's, what's the inequity that we're seeing and why is San Mateo County pretty tough on crime. I mean, they are tough on crime. And I, and, and I greatly respect the court because the court has done an extremely good job with the gangs um, in, in uh, lowering the uh, gangs and working with the federal government and stuff like that. Is the sentencing in San Mateo County, in your opinion, still fair? I have to say, I'm going to demur on that a bit because my practice has not been on the criminal side. Uh, I read and uh, try to understand what I can about that, but uh, I have not practiced in that area in San Mateo County or elsewhere in the state where my practice has taken me. So it would be difficult for me to say why and how San Mateo County compares to other jurisdictions in terms of the leniency or strictness of sentences for in general or for any particular kind of offense. I do think that we have a strong uh, district attorney who I happen to like quite a bit, um, a strong team of uh, prosecuting attorneys. Judges come from the ranks of the uh, uh, that office commonly and also county council and that kind of public employment come from that. Um, and uh, there may be Again, and this is kind of just speaking uh, loosely and as a matter of opinion, uh, there may be kind of an inherited perspective and also a desire to uh, uphold a certain kind of um, um, approach to 
sentencing that comes from their backgrounds. And I think our community, even though we're such a diverse community and we're, we're you know, progressive and liberal in, in many issues, our community still um, has, has a certain conservative element to it when it comes to wanting to have a, a safe public safety perspective um, community. Well, on behalf of Podcast by the Bay, Rick, we wish you the best of luck. I appreciate the challenges before you, and uh, I like that you're bucking the system, so to speak. And thanks again for speaking with us on Podcast by the Bay. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you for listening to this episode of Podcast by the Bay. Podcast by the Bay is brought to you by Highway Soul Productions. Check us out at highwaysoul.com and in conjunction with Liberty Realty. Liberty Realty, serving the peninsula and surrounding areas since 1986 for all your real estate needs. www.liberty-realtyinvestments.com Remember to subscribe and download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. You can contact Podcast by the Bay by their email at podcastbythebay at gmail.com. All material is property and copyrighted by Podcast by the Bay, but does not necessarily reflect the views of Podcast by the Bay. For sponsorship opportunities, please contact us by email at podcastbythebay at gmail.com. Stay tuned.